Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall. Nice to have you with us today. Our first study comes from Pennsylvania State University, and it's about a simple micromineral. It's called selenium. Now, selenium can help fight acute myeloid leukemia. That's good. It's natural, non-toxic. It'll help ward off leukemia, the myeloid leukemia. And a new study led by researchers at Penn State's College of Agricultural Sciences have described the mechanisms by which this occurs. The findings were published in cell reports and eventually could help lead to therapies that target some types of leukemia, like including acute myeloid leukemia, the most common blood and bone marrow cancer in adults. That's according to researchers. So, that's good news. It's simple. Again, I'm not going to go into all the science and biochemistry of it and the genetics of it, but uh, they've done the research and they published this article, so they're confident. Our next study comes from City University of Hong Kong and the Inner Mongolia Agriculture University, and it's about probiotics. That's the good bacteria that colonize your gut when you eat healthy, clean food, and even sauerkraut or tempeh or tofu or miso, even apple cider or apple cider vinegar. It helps support healthy blood pressure. A study using a mouse model for hypertension reported in the journal M-Systems found that mice that received probiotics that occur in breast milk had lower blood pressure after 16 weeks in comparison with animals that did not receive the probiotics. So, of all the good things that the probiotics do, including helping your immune system stay strong and healthy against all types of disease, it also helps keep your blood pressure down. Of course, getting rid of all the excess salt will also help. And stress leads to high blood pressure. And chronic stress leads to chronic high blood pressure. From the New York University Grossman School of Medicine, women with a heart-healthy diet, that's your healthy plant-based diet, in midlife, that means between 35 and 40, are less likely to report cognitive decline later. And by the way, I could add into that that exercising on a daily basis, let's say 10 to 15,000 steps, hopefully most of those taken briskly, but even after a meal to go for, let's say, a 3,000 step walk, rather brisk, but not fast, helps with digestion helps bring down the big curve. Remember, when you eat anything, the glycemic factor, meaning the sugars in the diet, will spike up, not good, and then gradually comes down over hours. But when you exercise, after a meal, go for a walk, suddenly you have a more even blood sugar, and that helps prevent complications of diabetes or prediabetes. So when we're diets, that are healthy are designed to lower blood pressure by 17%. And also, that also improves memory loss and prevents memory loss and other signs of cognitive decline decades later in life. So exercising, yes, but also just doing the simple things of life, the things we don't think about, like having a healthy diet. So a healthy diet, healthy exercise, and healthy stress management. 
And this was published in the Journal of Alzheimer, Alzheimer's and Dementia. Our next study comes from Brigham Young University, and it examines how religious faith bolsters family hope and unity. You didn't need a university study to tell you this. All over the world throughout time immemorial, people have known that. But a new study from Brigham Young University finds that a family's religious beliefs and practices are key catalysts to promote hope in the future and hope to manage personal challenges, which can help families build resiliency and unity, especially in crisis. To understand the relationship between religious beliefs and hope within family relations, researchers carefully analyzed in depth over 200 religious families interviews. And uh, these were all religion, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and different democratic features. The demographic features. Participants were asked a series of questions about their family processes and religion and family life. And while none of the questions inquired directly about hope, the responses offered by most centered around hope and led researchers to categorize the respondents' references to hope. At the end of it, it's people's belief that makes a difference that can pull them through crisis, help them when they're in terrible situations. So, just suggesting something, hope makes a difference. Tai Chi also makes a difference in curbing Parkinson's disease symptoms and complications for several years. This is from Queen Mary University. Tai Chi, which by the way is the Chinese martial art that involves sequences of very slow controlled movements, may curb the symptoms and complications of Parkinson's disease for a long period of time. And that was published in the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry. Its practice was associated with slower disease progression and lower doses of required drugs over time. That's good. So, something else that we can feel good about, making progress to help people who are suffering. And that's always positive. And finally, from Michigan State University, omega-3 fatty acids stop known triggers of lupus. Well, that's important. And what's important is DHA. DHA is one of the factors in the omega-3 fatty acids, and it can stop a known trigger of lupus and potentially other autoimmune disorders. So make sure you're getting DHEA. It can help block the activation of the disease. That's according to the latest study. All right, good news all the way around. Always trying to share the latest that can empower people to live a longer and healthier life. We're going to take a break. Come right back. Please stay with us. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Nall. What you're about to watch and listen to, in my opinion, is historic. It is so rare that we have an outstanding academic, such as Professor Jeffrey Sachs at Columbia University, one of America's most respected economists, who was asked by the government to lead a whole group of scientists, epidemiologists. What was the origin of the coronavirus? Where did it come from? And he did that. In this discussion with Ms. Iverson, 
on Kim Iverson on her show, and it's an I want to re- respond that she does some outstanding work. She's really an intrepid investigative journalist and an outstanding uh, interviewer. When she asks him about, give us the evolution of what you found, he starts off being very honest. He he trusted everyone. He believed everyone. In fact, what you're going to hear up front is the very person who we know now was responsible for so much misleading information was Peter Daszak, and yet he was invited in to help lead this whole investigation. Whoa. But over a period of time, through Freedom of Information Act documents, he saw that there was communication between Anthony Fauci and all these virologists and scientists, and he would later find out who had received millions of dollars from Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Allergy Infectious Disease to do research. But the longer he took, the more he saw that the original information, well, they all agreed it came from nature. And he saw contradictions to that. And there was another group of outside scientists, not affiliated with the National Institute of Health, where it wasn't, these people weren't getting research grants. And they said, you need a tutorial. You need to be educated on real virology because what you're being told is not true. And so he began to open himself up over a period of time. And by the end of this interview, and it's a long interview, he says they lied, meaning the people who he selected were lying, that he has absolute proof of where this stuff comes from, a laboratory. But more importantly, who hid all this? How did they do it? How did they, how did they obfuscate? How did they keep this from becoming public? that they were responsible for this pandemic. Accidentally infecting someone, but they were intentionally weaponizing a virus. That he is able to substantiate with agencies, a government department you never heard of before. So you're going to hear something unique that you will not see or hear anywhere else in the media. And this should give you a more honest, objective understanding of how everything they've been telling us has been a lie. Everything, including where it came from. Because then it would come from American scientist and Anthony Fauci. Hear him say it. We'll go to the clip. All right, let's get on with tonight's show. Really excited to be speaking with Professor Jeffrey Sachs. Professor Sachs, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, great to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Okay, I want to start with, there's so many subjects I could cover with you, but I actually want to start with COVID and the lab leak and where you started with it in your thinking and and just really dismissing the idea of a lab leak. And then having, uh, you partnered actually with Peter Daszak of EcoHealth Alliance to figure out the origins of COVID and then resulted ultimately in now you thinking that, it, it, do, you, do you now think it was a lab leak actually? Oh yeah, 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 most okay. likely. So how did you, let's start from the beginning. When, when COVID first emerged and the lab leak theory was being out, put out there by Donald Trump and you thought this is, and I agree that, that this is, when you're pointing the finger at China and you're trying to say they did this to us, that's ultimately trying to march us into a conflict with China. And so I see the fear in that and I still worry about that a little bit, but what was your thinking in the beginning and how did you get to the, to the partnership with Peter Daszak of EcoHealth Alliance? Well, yeah, let me give you some context. Uh, I was asked by the British medical journal 
The Lancet, which is a, a global, uh, very distinguished medical journal, to lead a commission on COVID-19 uh, just a few months after the outbreak began. I have a lot of experience uh, in the public policy side of pandemic diseases, and I was one of the architects of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria, and have had a lot of engagement over the years in public health finance and other public health issues. So the Lancet kindly invited me to chair a commission and I selected uh, about uh, 25 other commissioners from all over the world, people in uh, the world of politics, in the world of public health, uh, virology, uh, and uh, many areas that are relevant for uh, uh, a, uh, an epidemic, or in this case, a pandemic, meaning an epidemic that's everywhere in the world. And uh, one of the issues that we needed to look into was where this virus, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, where it came from. And so I instituted a number of task forces uh, as part of this work, uh, about 10 task forces actually. And for the task force on the origins of the virus, I asked Peter Dashug to head that task force and assemble a global uh, group of uh, scientists who would be capable of examining the issue of the origin of COVID. So this was around June 2020, uh, in about uh, six months, basically, after uh, this uh, uh, pandemic had been recognized. Can, now, can I ask you time, real quick, why were you, why were you the one selected to figure this out as an economist? What was it that they, why, why did they come to you? Oh, because the purpose of the commission wasn't just to figure out the origin of the virus. The purpose of the commission was to understand the pu public policy implications of a, the first pandemic, really, of this kind in, oh. in 100 years. Uh, so uh, okay. this involves uh, urgent financial issues, uh, how to get vaccines or not to people or medicines or medical supplies, uh, how to uh, address uh, the global cooperation or coordination issues involved. And those are areas where I have expertise. And so I was asked not to be the scientist. I'm, a, I'm an economist. I'm a public policy specialist. Uh, and so they asked me to help on the broad issues. And for each of the areas of concern, for example, how does the virus spread? I got uh, specialists uh, in, in uh, exactly the epidemiology of the disease, some wonderful people, people from all over the world uh, in terms of uh, public health measures. I got leaders in public health. And on the issue of where the virus came from, one of the many issues of this commission, I assembled a group of virologists and asked Peter Dashug to head that. Now, why Peter Dashug? Uh, Peter Dashug was uh, a uh, heading something called EcoHealth Alliance that people all came to know afterwards because it really came into the spotlight. It was an organization that uh, channeled research funds from the U.S. government, tracking in many cases uh, viruses in nature. So going out to places where bats populate uh, the locale, for instance, caves in 
southwest China in Yunnan province and looking at the kinds of viruses found there. And I thought, well, this is a guy who knows a lot about uh, nature and uh, transmission of viruses. And so he'd be qualified to lead this group. The way that something like this works is that there's a whole task force. They make a report and then there's a commission that is above the task force that takes the commission's report and makes a final report, which is what our commission ultimately did. But around June or July 2020, my own view was that there was a, a little debate and there were people saying this is pretty strange and uh, this may have been engineered and came from a lab. But I was reading the scientific literature and the main article appeared in March 2020, an article called Proximal Origins of SARS-CoV-2. And it appeared in uh, Nature Medicine. That's a very authoritative journal. And this was an article by authoritative scientists. And it said that this virus overwhelmingly likely came from nature, not from a laboratory. And it made several uh, explanations about why it could not have come from a laboratory. And I read it and I believed it. And uh, Tony Fauci referred to this article and it became, I think, the most read biomedical article of the year because this was a topic everyone wanted to know. And I read it and accepted it. And when others said this came from a lab, I explained to them, you really need to read the background uh, literature on this. And uh, that's pretty much where I was until the fall of 2020. Uh, and then uh, there were discordant notes, uh, more voices saying, you know, this really could be from a lab and by serious scientists. Well, that's interesting in and of itself. Uh, this wasn't a slam dunk, though that first article seemed to say it was a slam dunk. They really went way uh, far in saying just about nearly irrefutably this came from nature. But I would say still till the end of the year, on, on the whole, I thought, well, there's a debate, but most diseases uh, do come from nature after all. The, how many diseases really come from a lab? And it was only in 2021 that a couple of things happened to me. Uh, well, they happened to everybody first, that certain things started to get released by the Freedom of Information Act by intrepid reporters who were not in the mainstream, by the way, but The Intercept or U.S. Right to Know did uh, wonderful work because uh, The New York Times was carrying, this is uh, nature, 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 uh, and uh, never anything to the contrary. A science magazine was saying, this is, of course, uh, from nature and so forth. But uh, these uh, investigative units used the Freedom of Information Act, and they started to show that there was behind the scenes debate among the experts that we didn't know about. And this was uh, quite a revelation, actually, that, oh, there were meetings uh, on February 1st, 2020, phone calls with Fauci and a uh, number of scientists and and then we started to learn that things were 
said on those phone calls that were pretty weird, saying, you know, uh, this really looks like it came out of a lab, or I don't see how nature did this, uh, or 60-40 uh, lab nature, not at all the public rhetoric, and kept hidden from us. And at that point, a very uh, wonderful small group of scientists took me aside and said, we need to give you a tutorial in virology, Mr. Sachs, uh, to understand what we are seeing about this. And uh, very smart people, and they explained uh, at, at length uh, how they viewed this. And they urged me to go back to Dashig who was heading the task force and ask him for his research grant from NIH, not a summary of it, but the full grant, which sounded plausible to me because I was starting to see things that I didn't know, such as that Tony Fauci, head of NIH's division on uh, uh, infections and allergic disease, NIAID, was also the head of biodefense for the US. Whoa, I didn't know that. That's something pretty interesting that the US Defense Department was putting huge amounts of money through Tony Fauci's unit. I mm, That raised some question marks. And then uh, pointing out to me some articles by some virologists all associated with uh, Dashik and others that uh, said already back in 2005, 2006, the coronavirus was obviously a, a target for biowarfare and we needed biodefense and starting to talk about how uh, this kind of virus could be manipulated uh, as, a, as a vector in biowarfare. I said, okay, that's pretty interesting. But then they said to me, you know, this group is doing dangerous research. It's manipulating these viruses. Go, go look at the research. And they showed me the summary, which was posted, but said, go ask Dashig for the full proposal. And when I did ask Dashig, I was blown away by his answer because he said to me, oh, Jeff, I, I can't give you the full proposal. My lawyers say I can't give that to you. And I said, what? Your, your lawyers were a transparent commission. We're trying to investigate this. What do your lawyers have to do with this? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, this is under Freedom of Information Act lawsuit and so forth. I said, Peter, I need to read this now, now. And he said, no, no, I can't give that to you. And I said immediately, well, then you can't head this task force. That's for sure. This is a transparent commission. We are looking for the public will. We're not tied up in lawsuits and we're not going to be tied up in lawsuits. So I told him to step aside and he did, but he remained on the commission, but not on that task force for a little while. And two more things happened. One was that the rest of that task force attacked me as, you know, some uh, foe of science and how dare you and uh, you sacks, you're ignorant, reckless, fool, you're buying into this conspiracy theory stuff and very nasty from people that I've known for a long time. But the second thing was far more interesting, which was another Freedom of Information Act release came 
And lo and behold, the people on the task force are co-investigators with Dashug, and they didn't even tell me after I asked them repeatedly, do you have any conflict of interest? So suddenly I see, my God, this is really bad behavior. I ask you straightforwardly, do you have any conflict? They didn't lie. They never answered me until mm -hmm. this came out, but they yelled at me. <laughs> okay, I don't care about that except for the fact that the behavior was disgusting and unprofessional. I immediately disbanded that whole task force. And then the biggest thing happened, the biggest thing of all for all of us, which was that a whistleblower posted a research proposal on the Defense Department website of a proposal that had come from Dashig's group and the scientists associated with him called the Diffuse Project Proposal. This is extremely interesting, and it gets to the core of the whole issue. And the point is the following. What makes SARS-CoV-2 so infectious, far more infectious than its relative, the original SARS virus? Because the SARS virus, which broke out 2003-2004, was put out for a basic reason. It didn't become a pandemic. It was scary, but it was controlled because it wasn't so infectious. And in fact, people had to be sick for a long time before they could even transmit it to other people. So SARS-CoV-2 was really infectious. It had a, a basic reproduction number of 2.4, which means that on average, each infected person of this original Wuhan variety was estimated to infect 2.4 other people. And that's why you get a chain reaction, because as long as that number is bigger than one, even if you recover, it's 2.4 people that are following up with infection and they're gonna each infect on average 2.4 people and so it's a chain reaction. So why is that? And that has to do with how this SARS-CoV-2 genome attacks our cells. And one of the ways that it attacks our cells, our cells is that it has a stretch of DNA that is not only unusual in this kind of virus, never before seen in this kind of virus. And that stretch is called a furin cleavage site. And it's never been seen in a sarvacovirus, which is a SARS-like virus in this population of this species of bats. So that's why this virus was weird from the start because what is that furin cleavage site doing? So Kim, the point is that a whistleblower released the Diffuse project. People can find it online. Just uh, Google DARPA Diffuse. And the DARPA Diffuse project said something mind-boggling. It said that at Wuhan, at this Wuhan Institute of Virology, they have and it says in the text, more than 180 previously unreported SARS-like viruses. And they're gonna test them 
for how infective they are in humans. And they're going to examine specifically whether they have a furin cleavage site. And if they don't have one, they're going to insert one as an experiment to see whether adding the furin cleavage site makes the virus more infectious. Can I say on your show, holy shit? Because that's what this proposal is. Holy shit, what are you doing? You're gonna add a furin cleavage site. Well, if you go back to SARS from 2005, it turns out to be fascinating, especially for an economist going back to learn all these things. Because this idea of the furin cleavage site as being key to whether or not a virus like this would be highly infectious was already tested back in 2005, 2006, because an experiment was done originally on the SARS virus, add in a furin cleavage site, and whoa, that thing infects human cells much more easily. So the furin cleavage site wasn't some completely bizarre, unknown thing newly discovered in 2020. It was the object of fascination and interest as a key that would make a SARS-like virus highly infectious. Now think if you're in biodefense or biowarfare, we don't even know which it is, but that becomes an object of high interest. And the fact of the matter is there are a few labs in the United States that are part of Tony Fauci's, when Tony Fauci headed NIAID, part of his shop that he has funded heavily for a long time that exactly were focused on the furin cleavage site. And what these scientists in the United States had done, and they're very clever, they're brilliant scientists, they had figured out how to insert this furin cleavage site. And they had, in fact, one at the University of North Carolina, who's a central figure in all of this, had figured out the following, which is another mind-boggling thing. Viruses are defined by their DNA like we are. And these viruses have 30,000 nucleotides or base pairs, so-called. And they are RNA viruses and they have 30,000 long uh, sequences. And those sequences are letters. Those are the nucleotides that make up our DNA and RNA. So they're letters like A, T, G, C, and so on. And what this professor at University of North Carolina figured out how to do, and it's absolutely ingenious, is you give him a sequence of 30,000 letters. And I mean, literally just the letters. He will make a live virus from that. He can take the letters and assemble the DNA and insert it into a cell to have it produce the rest of the machinery of the virus, recover the virus, and have a real infectious virus out of a sequence of letters. And what he can also do is not only take that sequence, but say, hmm, I'm gonna add 12 nucleotides to that 30,000 letter sequence, 
right in this particular place that we've been studying for many years. And those 12 nucleotides code for the furin cleavage site. And I could put that in. That's what it means in the diffuse project to insert the furin cleavage site. So we have a scientist who's so clever that he can take the sequence of letters, turn it into a virus, make that virus as he wants. And he invented a concept as part of this, calls it the reverse genetic system, but he invented a concept of what he calls a consensus virus. And a consensus virus is give me 20 uh, SARS-like viruses. And I'll look at the first position of the viruses of the, of, the D, of the RNA or the DNA, the nucleotide, that is the base pair. And 18 of them have a G there, and uh, two of them have an A in that spot. And so the consensus is G. So I'm going to take the 20 viruses, and I'm going to call the first uh, place a G. Now I'm going to do that 30,000 times. Your computer can do it quite quickly. And I'm going to take the consensus for the second position, third position, all the way up to the 30,000th position. And I'm going to then have a sequence of letters that's 30,000 long. No actual virus in nature is exactly what I just did, but it's kind of smushing together 10 viruses and getting the average of them. And then because I'm really clever, because I've made this reverse genetic system, I'm going to make an actual virus of a kind that's never been seen before. Okay. Really, truly, in my view, oh my God. Because this was unsupervised research. And this was the direct intention of this grant proposal. Bingo, bullseye. And then we're told the following. That was in 2018 that this proposal was made. And then we're told that it was turned down. Don't worry. And I can tell you absolutely the fact that a grant proposal is turned down has almost zero to do whether the research is actually carried out. For a lot of grants, first of all, you submit a proposal to fund things you already did. I'm just telling you, you know, if when you put in a grant proposal, maybe 70%, not me, but this is how this biotech world works. You've already done a lot of this research. Now you're trying to get that funded so you can do the next research so you can get that funded with another grant. So we don't even know whether the work was done previously, but even if it's turned down, you have other grants, you have other research, you have other units. There's another unit, Rocky Mountain Lab, which is kind of wholly owned and operated by Fauci's uh, part of, uh, of uh, NIH. And it could have done this research. And then suddenly comes a joint article by one of the people at Rocky Mountain Lab and this professor at University of North Carolina. Oh, could be coincidence or could be the real deal. Who knows? We don't know for sure. But what we do know is that a few months later, we have an outbreak. And the outbreak is really strange because it has a furin cleavage site in it. 
and some other things that were part of the research. And it's not years after this thing, it's months after this thing. And then two more things, Kim, if I might, they start talking about the market, the market. This is uh, called the Huanan market in Wuhan. But this is almost surely where the virus was being spread by shoppers sneezing in the market rather than coming from the market because the timing is wrong. The market outbreak occurred in December, but there's so much reason to believe that the original infection in a human was maybe in October, maybe even earlier. And there are many reasons to believe that. Yeah. And then just to finish, to bring us up to date, it's a long-winded answer, but um, the scientists knew this. Of course they knew this. They knew this February 1st, 2020, that holy shit, this could have been a bad mistake and we're not sure. And they didn't tell us that. They did not tell us that. They lied. And the paper, the Proximal Origins paper, is almost tantamount to fraud from what we know afterwards. I want to watch my words carefully. I'll say tantamount, but the authors did not tell us what they believed and what they knew because they could never have written a paper, not a scientific paper, to say in March that the overwhelming weight was that it was natural. And we know from Slack messages now being subpoenaed and other email messages, they had lots of doubts, but they went ahead because one of them said, if it's from a lab, we're never going to be able to prove it. So we may as well argue that it came out of nature. But I think it's darker than that, because I think that the idea was to hide the American role in this. Kim, it's not even a matter of pointing to China. It's a matter of the United States. The cutting edge research was US research. The assembly and reassembly of SARS-like viruses was US research. It broke out in Wuhan, but maybe because a virus concocted in US labs and sent by filter paper to Wuhan was being tested against the bats that they held in captivity at the Wuhan Institute of Virology because one idea was to see whether the bats would be infectious to each other in the case of having a furin cleavage site in the sequence. So we don't know to this moment where this came from. And I'll give you uh, three kinds of hypotheses. One is that it is natural, but I think it's very unlikely from what we know because nothing has checked out on the natural story and least of all the marketplace. The second Mm -hmm. is that this was made basically in the US by the US as part of an ongoing research program by a lot of very clever scientists who believed everything's safe and under control. And that in the design of this, it was being tested in partnership with China 
And so there's definitely a China-U.S. partnership. That's the, that's the uh, dash of grants. And that it was being tested in China and accidentally was released from uh, WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Sobering, shocking, revelatory, yes. And honest, objective, and clear. We need an independent investigation. We need someone not associated with corporate America, not associated with science for hire. We need people to take his information that he has and documented, and we need to have congressional hearings where everyone that he talks about is brought in under oath. All these scientists we didn't know existed, all these agencies we didn't know anything about, and get to the truth. Our talkback number is 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. We're going to take a break. Just wrap your mind around everything you just heard. We'll be right back. Please stay with us. And welcome back, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. When I watched virtually as many different media as I could yesterday throughout the day and the evening, one message was clear. We should not question at any time and to any degree the accuracy and the meaningfulness of um, Netanyahu and the Israeli government's response to the Hamas terror attack that occurred on his country, 1,400 dead Israelis. All of us should, if we have a heart and a, and a sense of empathy, feel the deep pain that those survivors felt and the terror of those who were tortured and killed. End of story. You hear nothing at all, anywhere, of a larger context and a greater content that why would someone do this? If nothing else, just ask, what would be the motives? Was it just wanton attacks? No, it was not. Because if this had happened in America, if America had a state, and in that state people were kept captive, about 3 to 4 million, 2.3 million in Gaza, rest in the West Bank, and they had no rights, they had no freedom. They were, they were actually given the minimal amount of calories to keep them alive, but under no conditions thrive. As a result, if you live, if you spend a day, and I suggest Sean Hannity, and Mark Rubio, and some of the other neocon uh, warmongers, and that's all they are, warmongers. They support the military-industrial complex, and the military-industrial complex is behind the scenes on all this, because if there's a war with Iran, they win. If there's a war with Hezbollah in Lebanon, they win. If it goes into Syria, they win. If they push all of the Palestinians out, which looks like their intent, calling them animals, and then they can take over that land, and have one state and then purge the West Bank, which they've been doing with hundreds of thousands of settlers illegally taking that land, they win. So no matter what happens, Israel wins. The population, the innocent population of Palestinians lose. But who cares? If we cared, someone, at least one person in the mainstream media, would say, let us take an honest look at history. How did we get here? Let's look at how they live. Let's bring some of the people in who are real independent scholars on this. Let's bring some of the people who've lived 
who have committed no illegal act, no violence, do not support Hamas or terrorism. To the contrary, people who want to live in peace and harmony with Israel and historically have. They have no problem with the Jewish people. They have no problem with the Jewish people living together in harmony, two, two, two different uh, groups of people, and in the Christians, but you don't hear that anywhere. So we're going to play you a clip from Mary Lou McDonald on Palestine. See if you agree with her, because she is an Irish politician, and here's what she had to say in the Irish Parliament. People of the world are witness to a humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. Israel has unleashed the weight of its military might upon a beleaguered refugee population. They rain their arsenal of missiles down upon two million impoverished people hemmed into an area half the size of County Louth. This indiscriminate mass slaughter of innocent men, women and children is carried out in full sight of the world, in full sight of international leaders who have failed, who have refused to shout, stop. They see clearly the carnage and human rights violations inflicted on the people of Gaza. They have heard indeed the Palestinian people described as animals. They long know that Israel imposes an apartheid regime. Our hearts break for the loss of Israeli lives on that fateful night of October 7th. But be very clear that the Israeli offences against Palestine predate that night of horrific loss, which has been roundly and fully condemned. That condemnation stands in stark contrast to the refusal and failure of our own government in Dublin and of governments across the European Union and the world to condemn Israeli violations of international law. I believe that is shameful. Yeah, yeah. And I would remind our government that the recitation of all of our interventions and charitable acts for the Palestinian people do not relieve you as a government of your primary responsibility to hold Israel accountable to the world for its acts of impunity and its violation of international law. And we in Ireland know all too well the pain and tragedy of colonization, occupation, dispossession. We know the the, we've known conflict and suffering. We've known war. We know peace. So there is no excuse, no pretense that we don't understand the playbook of the colonizer, the occupier, the oppressor. We carried that weight and trauma for centuries and we still work to this day to reconcile, to heal divisions and to bring people together. So our history now speaks powerfully to us. It calls on us to speak out, to act in defence of Palestine, to act for freedom and self-determination. It also tells us that Ireland can and must be a leading voice for dialogue, for a just settlement, for ceasefires and for peace. 
To paraphrase the words of a great peacemaker lost to us this week, we know that conflict can be solved through dialogue and we know there is no excuse for conflicts to become eternal. As Palestinians pull their dead from the rubble and cry out to the heavens for justice, Gaza cannot become the graveyard of international law. Decimated Gazan neighbourhoods cannot become monuments to the international community's tolerance, acceptance, facilitation of Israel's violation of Palestinian basic human rights. And as we speak, Yankorla, the Gazan people face annihilation. Entire families are being wiped out. Hundreds of thousands displaced from their homes, their schools, hospitals and vital infrastructure obliterated. They are now running out of food. They are drinking unsanitized water in a desperate attempt to, save, to stay alive. Blockaded on all sides, cut off from medical supplies, from fuel and energy. Israel is laying waste to Palestinian life in Gaza with the imprimatur of some of the world's most powerful entities. For generations, the people of Palestine have endured this daily brutalization. Their lands have been occupied and annexed. Their people displaced, their homes and schools bulldozed to the ground. Their sons and daughters executed and incarcerated and their lives literally ravaged by apartheid. Israel acts with impunity, discarding international law, flouting UN resolution after resolution. And this current onslaught, this bombardment of collective punishment is the horrible but very predictable crescendo of occupation, annexation and oppression. And as the people of Gaza cling to their very existence, the leadership of the international community must now resurrect those values they claim to hold dear. And so with one voice, we must call for immediate and full lasting ceasefires. Unified, we must call on Israel to end its bombardment of Gaza and stop the indiscriminate slaughter. Together, with one voice, we must assert the primacy of international law and dialogue as the only basis for a just resolution and a foundation for a lasting and transformational peace. Kiankorla, that is the only way that the children of Gaza and Ramallah and the children of Tel Aviv and Haifa will see the future they deserve, free of conflict, free of hatred, a life of peace led as full and equal citizens. You can agree or disagree, but her facts are correct. And I think it's important that we understand that. We're going to take some calls now. I've given you a lot to think about. Just think of what Professor Sachs has said, that no media has covered, no media. And no one in the government has suggested committee hearings to bring all these people forward. He opened a door that he didn't know existed. He saw all of the Byzantine way that money was sent to different entities and then disguised until he read the actual grants and saw they were working on biological weapon. They knew what they were doing. 
that were making a deadly virus deadlier. And then so it didn't end up in the United States leaking anywhere. They sent it off to Wuhan. And because Wuhan receives money, they did the experiments there. Now, up to this point, we can only suggest that at some point, there was a mistake and the virus escaped infected three individuals, two of those three died, and the other one, uh, I don't know what has happened to that person, but the doctor who headed the Wuhan hospital, talking about this, their biology division, said that she had never seen anything like this before, and she wrote something on her uh, private email to send it out to some people, and the government came in and warned her, and then she disappeared also. Now, this was all before we were told anything about uh, the virus in the United States. But they already had a lot of things in place. And as he said, how is it? Is it just a coincidence? They've done all this research on a virus, and then a couple months later it manifests? You would have to be naive or simpleton to believe that. But then he showed the people that we didn't know existed, the agencies we didn't know a thing about, and that Anthony Fauci was the orchestra conductor of all this. All of these people should be brought in. Now you know the truth. So for those of you who want to accept that the vaccines were safe and effective, you were lied to. That the, uh, that the test to determine its efficacy was a false test, gave false positives, the PCR test. That uh, the therapy do nothing until your lips turn blue and you have to go in and be intubated but take the drug remdesivir, which Anthony Fauci promoted, was deadly. And minimally, based on last night's discussion with Jessica Rose, and I hope you heard last night's show, if you did not, download the Progressive Comedy Hour from last night with Dr. Jessica Rose, and she is a very um, level-headed scientist with multiple disciplinary backgrounds, publishing multiple peer-reviewed journals, and one of her study uh, specialty is examining studies to see if they're honest or not. And she said that near the end of the interview, when challenged, that at least 500,000 Americans have died from the vaccine, that 1.6 million have been permanently injured from the vaccines, that 14 million have had serious complications, and we don't know how many of those people ended up with myocarditis, we end up dying from that, because you do die from that. It's not transient, it's not, it's not something easy to get over. You don't get over it. So you're looking at, you're looking at at least 15 million people adversely affected, and yet not a word from the media, not a word from governmental agencies. No one is willing to tell you the truth. We are. So if you go forward, at least know that you're going forward with information that can make a difference. 888-874-4888 is our talkback number. And uh, we're off WBI now. just want to mention this, and then we'll go to your call. I have a special today, and this is created by the people in the office. I want to thank them. It's the Heavenly Aloe Vera Cherry Berry Drink. It's 32 ounces. Why would you be interested in taking this, as I do every day? because it contains 100% aloe vera juice concentrate with some of the most important herbs along with it. It's all organically grown. And it's of all the different types of aloe, it is called the Barbandinus, 
Barbara Mendes Leaf, which is the best of the best. It's the Rolls Royce of aloe, hand cut at three years, taken into a, a plant right there on the on the 1,200-acre aloe vera farm down in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. Then they add natural bang cherries, raspberry and black cherry, Siberian Penix ginseng root. Go to Colo, the most popular herb in the world, especially good for women. Wild yam root, also good for women. Ginger root, peppermint leaf extract. And so that's what you're getting. It's certified organic. In my opinion, if people went to club, uh, PubMed and they Googled uh, organic aloe vera whole leaf medicinal or health uh, values, you'd be overwhelmed by how much good it does. So you're getting that. So you want to do something good for yourself? And I don't make claims. Do your own research. You'll see why I believe this is the most powerful and important aloe vera. You're also getting with it the huge, I think it's 1,200 pages, Get Healthy Now book. It is a primer, the complete guide to prevention, treatment, and healthy living. It was a, it was on PBS. It was a national bestseller. With uh, it's big. It has uh, over seventy-four chapters. But you're also getting the DVD special, also seen on PBS stations. Get Healthy Now. You're getting all that in one package. It'll be sent out today. And, uh, and all you have to do is call this number, 877-627-5065. Go online, GaryNall.com. You can order directly, 877-627-5065, or call Neil in the Vitamin Closet, or go visit him. He's at 35 West 35th Street, top floor, and he's there Monday to Saturday, noon to 8, and his number is 646-926-5430. Let's say hello to Bob. Hi, Bob. Your turn. Oh, we don't have Bob. Let's let's go to, over and say hello to Jeremiah. Hi, Jeremiah. Pleasure talking with you, Gary. Um, I want to just commend you and thank you for staying on the origin subject because the whole world was turned upside down. Families uh, were kicked out of their homes through eviction of all you know, and, and foreclosure. Small businesses were destroyed. People were mandated to take dangerous, harmful, fake vaccines. And all of that is because of the virus that mysteriously appeared out of nowhere. So for people to leave the first step out of the sequence would be simply an incorrect procedure. Like people say they're tired of it. Well, it doesn't matter if you're tired of it. This is of huge legal and historical importance. And we need to right the wrongs of this. And it all begins with where the virus came from. So I know you're running out of time, but I just wanted to commend you for staying on that story because that's the first part of the sequential thing that we need to go through in ironing all of this out. I agree. If we don't, if we don't start where this all created was created and hold those people responsible who created this, then what's to prevent them from coming up with the next convenient epidemic pandemic uh, this month, next month, next year. These are these are people who, in my opinion, have no moral compass. They will do whatever is in their best interest, financially and through career. But there's a whole group of them who've received, collectively, tens of billions of dollars over the last 40 years. And so he's got a lot of people on his side. But now those same people should be in the dock, being challenged under oath, 
did they know that this virus was being weaponized? It was a gain of function. That is biological weapon creation. And they've lied about this, and the media has spread those lies. It shows you how absolutely corrupt the media is. Thanks a lot for your call. We're out of time, everyone. Have a nice day.